this is episode three, Liberation or Perpetuation. In the last episode, we talked about why the oppression of and violence against women in India perpetuates. In this episode, we will look at the role religion, specifically Hinduism, plays in the oppression of women in India and ask ourselves, does religion perpetuate oppression against women or does it liberate them from it? One very important aspect of the Hindu religion that has a significant effect on women is connectivity. In Hinduism, priority is placed on one's connections with others rather than the self. In India, a woman's connectivity is defined by her duty to her family. Women are even more connected to their families than men because they have the ability to produce children. Women are seen as being responsible for the family's auspiciousness and so must practice complete self-control and self-sacrifice. Women are expected to cook and serve food to their family, while they themselves must fast, eat leftovers, and be the last person in the family that eats. They are also expected to put their emotional and physical needs after those of their immediate as well as extended family. The Hindu idea that women must practice connectivity by being devoted to their family prevents them from having any individuality. Another Indian religious practice that discriminates against women is sati, or widow burning. If a wife dies, her husband can remarry. However, if a woman becomes a widow in India, she is expected to burn herself alive with his dead body or belongings. Because it is believed that women in India are meant to worship their husbands, they are regarded as useless if he dies. By burning herself along with him, she is showing her eternal devotion. It is also said that a woman who commits sati will then return as a good spirit and a heroine that will help protect her people. However, men are not expected to participate in this practice to become heroes. Moreover, in Hinduism, women are seen as impure or polluting because they menstruate. If a woman is menstruating and touches a person of the highest caste in Hinduism, or a Brahmin, he has to bathe. In this way, Hinduism is used to oppress women based on something that is unavoidable and ubiquitous to all women, their biology. Hinduism also teaches that a wife should serve her husband as God, even if he mistreats her. There is also a religious reason for female feticide, dharma. Dharma in Hinduism is a person's duty, and a woman's dharma is to give birth to sons. Hindus also believe in rebirth as a result of karma or a person's actions, and failing to give birth to a son is seen as punishment for bad actions in a previous life. In the past, women were discriminated against within the Hindu religion, not being allowed to access religious texts or institutions, and not being believed capable of a relationship with the gods. However, this changed greatly with the Bhakti movement, which will be described in detail later. Another religious practice in India that perpetuates the mistreatment of women is the Jagan system. In the Jagan system, girls become married to an immortal god. They spend their entire lives being devoted to their duties in the temple. Jagans used to be seen as auspicious because it is impossible for them to become widowed. However, today being a Jagan is synonymous with being a prostitute. The Jagans are sexually exploited by the village headmen. Because this practice is disguised as a religious one, nothing is done to stop it. The girls are often from low caste and so are designated by policymakers as laborers. When a jagan becomes old or a new girl replaces her, the headman will often abandon her and she will become a village prostitute. Several jagans do not understand that they are being exploited. They believe what they are doing is their religious duty. Moreover, many of these women live in poverty and are simply grateful to have a means by which they can feed their children, who are often fathered by the headmen. 
That this practice originated in a religious context and is still perceived that way explains in part why the sexual exploitation of women in India persists. The Jagan system in India may be juxtaposed with the Matama tradition. In this tradition, women are married to the goddess Gangama. Unlike in the Jagan system, being married to a divine being in the Matama tradition does not subject women to sexual exploitation. In fact, Matamas are said to be protected by the goddess and are allowed to have non-marital sex and children. A girl may devote herself to Gangama when her village is struck by disease. The liberation experienced by women who participate in this religious practice is symbolized by the talis that a woman will exchange with Gangama during her marriage to the goddess. Talis are also exchanged in human marriage in India, but have a much different connotation. While a husband ties a tali around his wife as a symbol of his ownership and dominion over her, the goddess's tali is a symbol of power, the power to give life. This is not the only example of a female goddess in the Hindu tradition that empowers women. Many influential contributors to the women's movement in India used Hindu goddesses as role models for women. Hindu reform movements also empowered women by encouraging them to leave their families and become students or ascetics, people who leave behind their worldly duties to worship the divine. Another example of the Hindu religion as an outlet for women to achieve liberation is the Bhakti movement, which was powered by women and low-caste poets who showed that the ability to devote oneself to God transcends class and gender. Bhakti, literally meaning devotion, is the practice of devoting oneself completely to the divine, whether it be a god with or without attributes. Bhakti can be examined through the work of Hiram Vyas. Hiram Vyas was a poet and a bhakta, or a person who practices bhakti. Interestingly, Vyas's poetry seems to simultaneously exude both feminism and misogyny. His attitude towards women and caste seemed to mirror the duality in the Hindu religion itself, both freeing and suppressing women. Vyas does not demarcate between men and women. He only cares if they are bhaktas. Moreover, Vyas praises the woman bhakti poet Saint Mira. He believes that not only Mira, but all women, can one day achieve what Vyas believed was paramount to every other goal, living in Vrindavan, one of the most sacred cities in Hinduism. Vyas preaches that any woman can have a happy marriage as long as she devotes herself completely to God. On the other hand, Vyas also tells women to worship their husbands as God and to devote themselves not to their own parents, but to their husbands and in-laws. While Vyas believes that women, just as well as men, can achieve religious goals if they are bhaktas, he also believes that women who are not bhaktas are of no use. Therefore, although bhakti is a more inclusive Hindu practice, it still traps women in a position where they must follow their prescribed roles and surrender themselves to the patriarchy. In the beginning of this episode, we asked the question, does religion perpetuate the oppression of women in India, or does it liberate them from it? There seems to be no clear answer. Some religious practices justify sexual exploitation of women, while others protect them from it. While Hinduism uses women's biology against them by designating them as impure, it also empowers them by celebrating Hindu goddesses. While Bhakti views anyone who prioritizes devotion as auspicious, one must ask who women are expected to be devoted to. Is it God or the men in their lives? So, perpetuation or liberation? Only one thing is for sure, things are changing. And with modern Hindu reform movements, they seem to be shifting towards the latter. So what do these changes actually look like in modern Indian society? In the next episode, we will discuss Mataji, a woman that is transforming Hinduism for women in India.